You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Tim Pickering and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who may not recall, Tim was actually one of my very first guests back in December 2014, episode 53 and 54, and I think we managed to pick pretty much the high of the commodity markets with our episodes, which is, of course, Tim's area of expertise, as you will hear today. If you're new to the show, I hope today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check back the back catalog and listen to all the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Richard last week, where we really tried hard to settle the debate whether to dynamically adjust your position size or not. Not sure we managed to agree on anything, but it was a lively conversation without a doubt. And uh, it also included, by the way, my thesis for why I think trend following could be returning to its golden era of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. If you missed that one, I strongly suggest you listen to it after this conversation. Now, as you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be provocative without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to avoid, sorry, to advocate how to think critically uh, about investing in an uncertain world. And by the way, to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. All right, with that, Tim, thank you so much for your uh, patience with my long introduction. It's uh, really great to have you back on the podcast this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, It seems almost like yesterday. <clears throat> the world's pretty different from 2014, but uh, it seems almost like yesterday for, for some reason, which probably tells you how long I've been in the business. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and by the way, we are doing uh, our conversation today on, on pretty short notice. Um, and so it, if it feels a little bit improvised today, it's because it is a little bit improvised. <laughs> but there is be lots of valuable topics that we're going to be talking about for the next uh, hour or so. Um you know, because we're recording also a day early, I don't really want to do kind of a traditional market wrap uh, as I uh, would have done. Um, but I think rather it could be more fun just to talk to uh, to you and we could go back and forth in terms of, you know, what you've been seeing, focusing on in the last uh, week or few weeks uh, in, in the markets, in wherever market you want to kind of uh, bring up. So, uh, so I'm curious to hear what's what you're seeing right now happening. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been an exciting, you know, quarter. Um, now we're in quarter two, but the last quarter was very exciting. Um, commodity is on everybody's tongue. You know, you can't go to a coffee shop or a donut shop without uh, everybody and and their parents talking about commodities. It's all relevant to uh, to everyone now. Um, you know, beyond the shock and awe of what's been happening in Russia and the Ukraine. Um, this commodity story has been developing for a long time, an awful long time, actually. And uh, we started to really move the needle in this area in 2018 and into 2019. Still, nobody wanted to talk about it. But what's relevant really right now 
um, it's commodities. And I started my career focused on natural gas. It was the Bitcoin at the time. It teaches you lots of lessons about uh, different regimes, different volatility paradigms, obviously extraordinary, extraordinary volatility. And I'd say the biggest story in the last week or two has been natural gas. Crude gets a lot of the headline. Gold gets a lot of the headline, sort of these typical commodities. But natural gas is up uh, a long ways, uh, probably 10 or 15% in the last week. Um, and, uh, you know, it's starting to get some headlines. And whenever that happens, it kind of feels like coming home for myself and, and my uh, co-founder here at Auspice, Ken Corner, in that, uh, you know, the volatility of, of commodities like natural gas is, is an area we're very comfortable in. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're, and you're absolutely right. 10% uh, this week alone. I would pick out another market that has had an interesting week, and that's the 30-year US bond down um, about 4.5%. Maybe it's related a little bit to what happened this week where the Fed minutes uh, came out. And, um, well, there we have it. 95 billion a month is what they want to uh, shrink the balance sheet with. 60 billion in treasuries and 35 billion in mortgage securities. So, um I think the world is in for a little bit of a change in sentiment. Uh, and of course, the markets have uh, reacted to this for the last uh, few months. And also the other thing that I guess they made pretty clear is that, you know, these 50, 50 basis points rate hikes uh, may not uh, be uncommon in what uh, is likely to come, which is a bit of a departure, actually, uh, from what we've seen from the Fed for so many years uh, so I think, and I kind of come back to that sometimes on the podcast, and this is the thing about, I think we may have lost a little bit of our imagination, what markets can do, because I think we're really heading into a completely different regime, um, and, and that's going to be really interesting to uh, to follow. Of course, for systematic traders, uh, trend followers, uh, in, in our case, of course, it's not a uh, uncommon place to be, and we don't uh, worry about it too much. But I think a lot of investors is in for quite a, a rude awakening, actually, uh, when this starts to uh, kick off. Now, Tim, before we dig into, we've got a lot of topics, actually, and this is going to be super, super exciting and interesting because it will be commodity focused, clearly. And as you say, it is the topic uh, at the moment to to focus on. But I also wanted to kind of go back a little bit um, to pick up where we left off all those years ago. And you know what? I was kind of thinking, since we're doing this on short notice, wouldn't it be fun to find the same questions that we did in December 2014 and, and, and ask you the same thing and see what you would say today? But I'm not going to do that, frankly. <laughs> Although I did, there was something really interesting, and that is we did talk about dynamic uh, position sizing even yes. back then, yes, um, which is, of course, a little bit of a sore topic uh, on the top the podcast i have to say so we may get into that uh, a little bit but as i said i would like to know maybe uh, just what's been going on big picture stuff because frankly as i said we spoke when commodities were having the you know a kind of a bull market cycle high uh, about seven eight years ago um, and so it may not have been the easiest of times to be focusing on commodities. So just to give people a little bit of a of a backstory, um, you know, what's what have you guys sort of been up to uh, during that period of time? One thing that hasn't wavered is our tilt towards commodities, <clears throat> and that hasn't wavered uh, throughout my career. 
um, you know, I started at a conservative Canadian bank, TD Bank in Toronto, went through the trading development program, and you're given the opportunity and exposure to many of the typical uh, treasury areas, currencies and interest rates, capital market derivatives. And I ended up on the on the prop desk and the proprietary desk really had carte blanche in terms of what it focused on. And, and the area I ended up focusing on was commodities. And at the time, to date myself, um, commodities were not in favor. This was dot com and, and the internet and, and technology um, circa the mid late 90s. And so commodities, as they have been recently, were really out of favor. And uh, you know, there's many catalysts that came next in the late 90s and early 2000s, i.e. China building uh, a lot of demand for commodities and the, you know, the super cycle was on. But at the time, you know, it was kind of viewed that I was throwing away my career focused on commodities. I looked at that very differently. I looked at it as I do now. Commodities are the most diverse asset class there is. It's, it's, it's hard to argue. Cotton is not like crude, is not like coffee, is not like canola. And it creates this massive pot of opportunities, um, you know, for a trader, for a, uh, especially, you know, when we can get into this, a rules-based trader where you're agnostic as to where those opportunities come from. Um, and I think we're in the same place. It was, it was highly out of favor uh, for, you know, many reasons, many fundamental reasons. Um, and here we go again. Um, and we see this as perhaps even you know, a generational opportunity uh, to participate in this space for, me for many, many reasons. Uh, but that's where we came from. That has not changed. It was a tough road for a long time. And you're right, circa about 2014, there was quite a bit of volatility in the energy space, commodities in general that year. Um, from about 2015, 2016 on through 2019, it was very tough to talk about the asset class. It was in decline, first of all. Um, despite the diversity of the asset class, if you look at the benchmarks, it was in decline for a, for a long period of time. That, of course, disillusioned investors. The equity market was performing well, quantitative easing, low interest rates. You know, what do we need this, this commodity diversification for? There's a zero fear of inflation. And when you said things like stagflation, people really thought you had lost your mind. But the world progresses. We saw 10 years of declining capex in oil and gas and mining. That started circa 2011, 2012. Um, and here we are 10 years later. And, you know, not to be too fundamental because I'm not a fundamental trader, but, but you know, we got to look at some of the facts. You know, we look at, is there an opportunity for a commodity super cycle? And how does that affect my business? Well, first, the opportunity. Is there an opportunity for a commodity super cycle? We think there is. There's two basic ingredients for a commodity super cycle, and that's a long period of underinvestment in supply. Well, we can easily see that fundamentally. We can see a decade of CapEx decline. So that's the first thing. Then you need some sort of generational catalyst, some sort of thing that gets the party started. That ended up being COVID. It became very apparent, but there's other layers to that cake that even for us focused in commodities didn't quite see clearly, and that is the green transition, build back better, ESG, these things become inherently bullish and inflationary, we believe, for commodities. And that's going to set up this cycle in a sort of a supersized way, we believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll get into those, I'm sure, a little bit uh, more 
Just out of curiosity, in, in you know, obviously you mentioned you're a, a sort of systematic uh, trader as well, and, uh, and one of the things we focus on a lot uh, as as systematic traders is, of course, uh, the research we do. I don't want to give, you, I don't want to ask you to give you away uh, to give away any of the secret sauce, of course, but I'm just curious since we last spoke. Has there been any kind of major discoveries in terms of research, in terms of how you trade the markets? I know we're gonna, you know, we're gonna touch on some of the indices you've created, but from your classical trend following approach, have you discovered something that uh, you feel is really meaningful uh, and and has kind of improved your process? To extracting these profits, or it's it's a great question. Um, I would say this is from a trend following, or what we call a trend capturing perspective. Not much is different. We've added diversifying strategies, but still remain. You know, two thirds of our risk plus is is trend related um, for all sorts of obvious reasons that most people on this call understand. We we all want to follow trends. Um, the question is, when things aren't trending, what are you doing to improve your, you know, improve your results? So that's where we spent some time. Circa 2014, those things started to kick in, looking for non-trend strategies, strategies that were shorter term in nature, that were trying to extract a value in a different way when trend is just not performing. When trend's great until it's not working, and and we all have to realize that that you know the market's not always trending it moves somewhere and then it vibrates around and what do you do in that period where really nothing's happening and if you go through these periods like we did in the bear market of the commodities low vol especially not much was happening across many commodities so it makes it much tougher so we started to focus on on that uh, as part of our diversifying strategies the things that could help us out when at times when trend isn't working but as a whole what we've done really remains intact, and that is creating a very robust strategy that adapts to different volatility paradigms, different paradigms for an asset class. I always pick on natural gas. Natural gas at 30 vol is not the same as 130 vol. It may as well be different asset. How does your strategy, not just your position sizing, but how does your strategy adapt to those different regimes? And so that that adaptability that we started our careers with in natural gas, which really became the gift, the proving ground, that adaptability is what we've taken forward to all markets. We trade the same core strategy um, in everything from natural gas to Swiss franc. They're very different assets, but the strategy adapts and finds its way uh, given the characteristics of that, that, that market and that market at that time. And so that robustness, is what we believe has been the key to our longevity, even in a tough period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was tough, um, but you know we made it through to the other side. And you get to the other side when volatility starts picking up, obviously Q1 of 2020, throughout 2020, 2021, and here we are in 2022, same story. And those same core strategies are performing exceptionally well. So um, we're always looking for edge in terms of risk management, how to um, risk less and, and you know make at least as much in risk less and 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 uh, be more effective from a, a execution perspective those are our goals the core of what we do remains intact mm, cool 
um, one thing, and I can't remember, uh, and I apologize for that, but I can't remember when you created the index because obviously that that would be mm. different from your kind of what I would say actively Correct. managed trend following type long short, um, you know, uh, strategy. When did the index, the broad commodity index, uh, come about, and why why did you create it in the first right. place? Yep, great question. So we we created two indices uh, in 2010. Um, the first one was published by the NYSE, the Broad Commodity Index, starting in September of 2010. That was in preparation for an ETF we first launched in Canada, um, now have on the NYSE uh, with our partners at Direction uh, since 2012. Um, so that index has been around for uh, you know 12 years. Um, we also created a managed futures index that we continue to publish, um, which is really the same strategy, but instead of it being long, flat commodity, it's long, short, and it's commodities and financial markets. So our managed futures index has been published since a, about the same time. It was a couple months later. Um, those are those are uh, strategies that we look at in sort of a traditional CTA sense. No, they are not the most agile of what we bring to the table. They perform a certain function at a certain transparency and, and price point. For the broad commodity strategy, which has been a you know a fantastic part of our business the last few years. Um, what were we trying to do? We were trying to create a product that ultimately outperformed the BCOM and the GSCI. So if you want commodity exposure, we accepted that the bulk of the world's assets are still indexed in some capacity. Long only is very common. Can we supply something that has those index characteristics that does better? Well, how did we go about that? Well, we introduced trend following as the first step. Volatility-based position sizing is a second step. And then and then term structure, where do you want to be positioned on that forward term structure of, of uh, futures contracts as another layer to the cake, put that in. It's not alpha, it's not beta, it's something in the middle, but could we give the investor a better experience than the volatility and the deep drawdowns of a, of a say, GSCI or BCOM? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, and, and I imagine probably uh, self-explanatory here, but I imagine the it is easier to get investors to talk about an index than it is for kind of a traditional CTA type strategy? Or? You know, it's uh, it's just a harsh reality is that when there's a benchmark index, there's a comfort there. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the broad commodity index strategy that we publish and we use for ETFs and, and you know, other products is uh, is a CTA strategy. Like trend following, it's volatility-based position sizing, it's got term structure, it's got lots of the elements of our our flagship CTA, you just don't call it a CTA. And so you're you're now saying, I've got a long commodity product um, that, that goes to cash when things aren't going your way and has risk management embedded in it. You know, that, that all is very appealing to people. As long as you stay away from those three little CTA words, it seems to help a lot. And so having said that, you know, it, that was a tough area to be just like everything in commodities for you know, for that period, like we were talking, 2014 to 2019, nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, the explosion of interest in commodity for all all sorts of obvious reasons has people searching for better ways to go about that from a risk management perspective. And, and you know, all those elements that we advocate for and you do an excellent job of advocating for from a CTA perspective, that's all we're doing there. It's just elements of CTA. Yeah. Now, you kind of touched upon it a little bit in terms of um, people, uh, or maybe I should say that commodities 
today and maybe in the last 12 months or so, something is happening, something pretty fundamental is happening. You talked, of course, of, of CapEx uh, and, and so on and so forth. But what else do you think investors are starting to understand in terms of the case, if they are going to make the case for commodities or increase commodity exposure in their portfolios, what are some of the things that you're seeing in addition maybe to the fact that we have had an underinvestment, which is probably more the energy yep. sector, I would imagine, because of the ESG and all of that stuff, which we'll dig into a little bit deeper as well. But but obviously commodities is not just energy. There are so many other things. So what are the other things that you highlight when you speak to investors? Why commodities and, and why now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the obvious things, inflation protection. So we start mm-hmm. there. And you okay. know, obviously, this has become a very inflationary world, which two years ago, you know, people weren't fearing, maybe three years ago, people for sure weren't fearing it in the calm and, and uh, orderly world of 2019. So I think we can illustrate now very easily that commodities have been one of the best ways to get inflation protection. So mm-hmm. we've got all these very typical ways of, of going about it that are at the, you know, sort of uh, common and, and people understand. So gold is kind of, you know, one of the first stops on that uh, on that journey. Uh, gold has been a great diversifier. It is a very unreliable inflation hedge. That's easy to demonstrate. <laughs> then you get into things like tips. Say, well, tips are going to save the day. Uh, of course, the volatility that tips operate under and the amount of tips exposure you'd, you'd need to actually do anything is, is pretty tremendous. I, noting that one of the ETF providers here just this week provided a, uh, a levered exposure to tips um, because you need that. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So, you know, tips isn't going to solve the day. Um, and then you get into, uh, you know, just uh, long duration treasuries. Well, that can go either way as well. Um, so what's going to really help? And you start to look at the commodity indices and you go further and you, you know, look at something like what we do with with Broad Commodity, where you layer in trend and risk management. And those things have been the most effective mm. at catching this inflation cycle from about the summer of 2020 when it really started to kick in. Um, and so, so there's inflation first. So we can demonstrate that commodities, you know, make a difference. But then the question becomes, well, which commodities, what strategy... Then we get into things like, well, it's it's portfolio diversification. We know commodities can give you portfolio diversification, but why does that even come about? Well, it's that statement I made earlier. This is the most diverse asset class. So there's many opportunities from a diversification perspective. Don't hang your hat on gold. Don't hang your hat on oil. Be open-minded and agnostic because we just don't know what it's going to be. That's obviously a, a mantra of being a CTA. And then there's alpha generation. You know, it gets described as this is this very complicated area of commodities. And you're right, it is. You know, cotton's not like crude. These are very different, unique commodities. But if you're adept at an area, whether it's fundamental discretionary or from a risk management perspective as a CTA and a quant, this is an area that that much alpha can be generated if you understand term structure. Ken and I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, obviously at Shell understanding, you know, the four term structure of energy and how to participate in that, how to mitigate things like contango and backwardation or enhance your returns based on contango and backwardation. So we think there's many, many alpha opportunities in that. Those are kind of three rack answers. The fourth answer is this green transition. And this is not to be political. I'm not an American, so I have no, no stake in the game. But I would say that 
you know, the idea of build back better and, you know, it's a, it's a noble idea um, can't happen without commodities. The first words build. So there is this green transition going on and, you know, we all want smart things like EVs and we believe in wind farms and renewables, but you can't build those things without commodities. And, and so this layer on top of everything that's going on is inherently really, really important and, and inflationary. So if people can get their head around what the reality is, it just all leads you back to, to commodities. And, and one of the statements we remind people of, and it wasn't, it wasn't my statement, is Larry Fink said, you know, if our solution is entirely a green world, so that's, if that's our goal and we're going to move to you know, uh, carbon neutral, we have to, as a society, accept much higher inflation because we just don't have the technology to do it yet. And this is going to be a big policy issue going forward. That is just the reality. So when you add in all these things, inflation protection, portfolio diversification, alpha generating opportunities, um, it's not an area a lot of people are experts in trading. You know, not Lots of people trade equities and fixed income, but it's not many people that are comfortable with commodities. There's an alpha side of it, and then the whole green transition in ESG. And I think that is really an icing on the cake in terms of the opportunity and probably the longevity of the commodity opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said there. Um, but there's one thing I, um, um, and I don't know if you focus on that actually, um, because I don't think it's so obvious to many people, but you didn't mention the crisis alpha uh, term. <laughs> and the reason I bring I, that I did up or, is, I did or I did not. Well, no, you did not you really. Did not. Yeah, and, that's right. No, you did not really. And and it's interesting <laughs> because in one sense, I can fully understand why you, you wouldn't mention it. But when I look at, because people often ask us, okay, so why is it that CTAs do well when there's a crisis? And um, and and I and of course, you know, I'm I'm personally not a big fan of the term because I think it it opens too many doors in terms of interpretation. But if we go back and we look at the 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 evidence, there is no doubt that CTAs have done really well through many different crises, and and. And part of the secret to why, because people think, okay, a crisis, we mean an equity crisis. Okay, so usually it means equities going down in price. And so when we look at returns for, for managers, trend followers, what we realize is that actually the equity portion, at least to in the beginning, whether it's the first month or the first three months, depends – but we're going to be losing a lot of money in equities because very often we are going to be on the wrong side of that. So why is it we can provide this protection and actually do well through crisis? It is often, in as far as I can tell, because the commodities are moving at the same time and usually they're moving, um, you know, in in a direction where often CTAs uh, have. Well, they're just you know, moving. They're moving, right? Well, they're, they're moving. Provide, they're providing we, trend, and, and again, we're well, agnostic providing in a general. Trend. Exactly. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking, and, and why you, didn't you, I mention you can it? Have, you, well, <laughs> you can have it for free. I'll give it to for free. You can put it in your pitch book, Crisis Alpha. <laughs> There's a very specific reason I didn't mention it, and and that Good. is you asked me about commodities. And so when I talk about commodities, I'm talking about what we believe is the best way to get commodity exposure. And that's a different discussion from Crisis Alpha. So for example... Our long flat strategy is intended to provide a better commodity upside experience than long only BCOM or GSCI. Yes, we're using trend following risk management, term structure, and all those CTA-like things, but its opportunity set is upside, right? 
So let's imagine a time like Q1 of 2020, COVID's hit, commodities had been moving higher, they pulled back strongly. The best case that I can bring to the table is going to cash and protecting mm -hmm. my investors' capital. That's not a crisis op alpha opportunity. That's a, that's a risk management opportunity to provide my investors a better experience. On the CTA side of the equation, that's a different story. One gives you commodity upside. One gives you the opportunity for crisis alpha. So when we transition into a discussion away from pure commodity to now we're a commodity tilted CTA, that is a leading part of what we do. And, and we as a group of CTAs have spent a lot of time through the tough period for CTAs focusing on crisis alpha. Here's how we did in 2008. Here's how we did in you know, 2010 in recovery. Here's how we did when volatility expanded in 2014. Here's how we did in late 2018 when the equity market corrected. That's crisis alpha. Q1 of 2020, Q1 of 2022. And it's been our job to perform you know, well at that time. And so we used to lead with that, right? Our story is CTA, it's crisis alpha, and that's what we bring to the table. And that's really the biggest part. It's slide number two. And, and now it's slide 21. And here's why it's slide 21, because we have more to bring to the table. We believe this next phase for the marketplace, and including CTAs, and especially for a commodity-tilted CTA, is, is beyond crisis alpha. Crisis alpha, yes, check. We've had to provide it and done a good job of providing it like our CTA peers. Hopefully we've done it better. That's you know our pitch, and, 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 and that's great. But what we also bring together bring to the table for our investors is commodity alpha. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to really talk about that now where we couldn't really talk about it before because nobody cared. Nobody was after commodity. Nobody was after those diversifying returns. So we're balancing the discussion between, yes, crisis alpha on a CTA perspective, but it depends what that investor is looking for. And listening to what those investors are looking for is key you know, to what we believe is longevity in this business. And crisis alpha for some, some aren't looking for crisis alpha. They want, right now, they want commodity exposure. They want commodity alpha. They want um, something different just that then we're going to save your portfolio if, if and when the market corrects. What we've had is the opportunity in the last two and a half years since COVID hit to demonstrate, yes, crisis alpha, Q1 of 2020, but the rest of 2020 wasn't crisis alpha. The equity market marched higher, volatility came back down, and there were other opportunities. Let's call those commodity alpha opportunities. 2021, there was no existential crisis. The equity market continued to do well. And, and so, you know, can you bring something other to the table than crisis alpha? Because if it's just crisis alpha, you've got one thing to talk about. Now you get into Q, Q1 of 2020 and yes, or 2022, and yes, the equity market corrected and that provided this crisis alpha opportunity. But on top of that, if you were adept at extracting commodity opportunities, what a commodity alpha opportunity it's been. And so we're trying to balance that discussion. There's, there's multiple things we can accomplish for an investor in a commodity-tilted CTA portfolio that is rules-based, agnostic, and, and disciplined. Now, just to jump a little bit in, in, uh, in something that just springs to mind when you talk about that, um, 
Now, of course, after people um, listen to our episode today, probably everyone will be picking up the phone and saying, we need commodity exposure and CTAs uh, that has commodities. <laughs> well, in we can them. all we'll hope. See, well, exactly. <laughs> we'll see lots of uh, calls and meetings. I'm, I'm sure of that. But in, in all seriousness, uh, I think we all remember what happened after 2008 when CTAs did really well and everything else did poorly. There was a big inflow of, of money into the industry. And that was a big disappointment uh, to many of those new investors. I'm not so interested in that side of the question, but what I am interested in is a little bit in terms of what you think we as an industry can actually cope with in terms of inflows given market liquidity on the markets we trade because, and I can only speak uh, from experience in terms of the firm that I work with, because we have a high exposure to commodities in our portfolio, we are not going to be as big as some of the multi-multi-billion dollar uh, CTAs right. out there that may have an, more exposure to financials. So my question to you, how much AUM do you think, um, and I know this is kind of a silly hypothetical question, but I mean, how much room do we have in terms of liquidity in these markets? You probably would know that better than most. Well, so it's a great question, and, and I think you nailed it. As commodity-tilted managers, this is something we have to accept. It's also, when we look back in time, you know, why did some of the biggest of the CTAs and quant firms tilt towards financial? Well, part of it was was the, the dilemma they were in from an asset perspective. Um, you know, all strategies have capacity, and I don't, mm. it can even be long-term trend volume. All, all strategies have capacity, especially given the asset uh, makeup, we accept that. Um, we think there is quite a bit of room. Um, the the exposures that we are now all looking at are starting to expand. So it's not just the most liquid commodities. There's some less liquid commodities. There's also China, and and so you start to look at expanded opportunities. Uh, OTC. Um, these are all areas that uh, you know we think make sense to look at. Does it solve everything? Can it be as big as the financials? No, but I think we're still quite a ways away from that. Um, not an insignificant point. I'm not. I'm not minimizing it in any way. I'm just saying I think there's room. And, and at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do with Auspice and, and my team is is uh, continue to grow where we see our, our strategies being effective. And if they're not, then you know we're going to have to make adjustments, whether that's from a capacity perspective or not. We, we have a good fortune of, you know, in our careers of having been at some fairly big shops. You know, Ken and I came out of Shell and, and you know, fairly large exposures in terms of uh, commodity markets. So we feel fairly comfortable in knowing where we can get to with, uh, with commodity exposures and various ways to do that. Uh, but, you know, your question is, uh, is a great one. Um, I think we just need to be aware of it. Now, you mentioned ESG earlier, and now you mentioned the word China, and China might be a solution because obviously they have big commodity markets, but, and I don't want this to be a controversial conversation, of course, but I do <laughs> have to, I do have to ask you, because it's some, one of the things that we on our side actually have kind of concluded on our side, and that is, we don't think that the G in ESG is actually compatible with China, and so we're not going to embrace China as a marketplace because we have told our investors that we believe in ESG and therefore 
we um, we can't just ignore the G. Yeah. In that case, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's it's. Uh, I think it's a great point. I think by going into um, certain markets, China preeminent is it, it contains a bunch more risks, right? And one of the reasons we all trade futures is because we're eliminating some of those risks. And obviously, we have some very strong opinions about that with our ESG paper that we just wrote, and we can get into yeah. that later. Yeah, we but will. but you know, from from a G from a governance perspective, I mean. 100%. It introduces another layer of risks. It's one of the reasons that we're very tepid in going into these markets, very, very cautious. You know, now we've got things that typically as a as a futures trader are in our control or within the control of a North American or European futures exchange that are now not in our control. Um, and so that is not without uh, a lot of thought at our end as well. Part of it becomes who's the investor? Does you know is, is that is that for the everyday investor that invests in our commingled fund? Um, is is you know is is that a, a risk that makes sense for that type of an investor? Up for debate. Uh, how much exposure you know is obviously going to be a key part of solving that. Um, but certain investors are absolutely looking for that type of exposure, and, and we want to help them in that regard. We believe that we have an agile approach that is based in risk management with a lot of history and a lot of comfort in that, that we feel those markets are ideally suited for if, if we can get over the G, if we can get around the fact that it is a different world and they play by different rules. So you're right. There's a bunch of steps to solve there. There's a big cost factor. You know, the ways to get th those exposures, especially for Western money, is very complicated and very expensive. And so you have to be, you know, fairly committed. And to us, that means you have to have a committed investor that says, yeah, we see the opportunity you do. We're comfortable with that cost layer. We're comfortable with some of the portfolio being there, eyes wide open. We're all sophisticated here. And, and we put that on the table. And we think that's where the opportunity for us is. Um, but, you know, your point is, uh, is perfectly well taken. You know, but you don't even have to go to China to have that that G discussion. And that you know, I, I believe what happened with the LME and nickel here in uh, you know in the last month was one of the most disgusting situations I've experienced in my you know twenty five plus years as a futures trader. So I was going to bring that up actually. What are your thoughts? Uh, and we don't have to spend too much time on sure. it. But what are your thoughts and what are your actions? Uh, I don't know if you trade on the LME or not, but yes, I imagine you do. might do. Yep. Yeah. What are your thoughts? What are your actions? I know Transtrend came out with a paper this week saying they are leaving the LME for now. What are your thoughts and actions? A lot of debate internally. We have not left the LME. Um, we are, as we were before, very cautious. Um, we were concerned before, um, not that something like this could have happened because, you know, it kind of unfolded differently than we anticipated, but, you know, it's kind of an old school way of doing things. And, you know, you know, we're all about technology, like, you know, most of the people at the table. And, um, you know, we felt that that came with some other risks and, and, you know, the governance being one of them, it's, it's the way that situation unfolded. And we were one of the, you know, we were one of the investment groups that had our trades killed. Uh, we executed trades. We had fills. We were done on those trades, exiting a market that that we wanted to exercise our agility in and take, you know, take profits. Um, and then had those trades killed. And the, what I believe, the manipulation beyond that 
is is just you know unconscionable you know that that takes away the comfort we have and all those things that we describe to investors as to why we trade futures you just robbed us of that and so um yeah so we're very uh unhappy <laughs> with the situation we ended up getting out of our nickel trade profitably and left uh you know millions and millions and millions on the table um very frustrating uh for us and for many others in that you know that's the agility we need to express in a market and if we can't then and that possibility exists that's why we don't participate in certain markets because of that whether it's gap risk or the inability to, to get out of our positions when we want to it's really how it went about you know how it came about and that is you know you have a large producer of nickel and they have a position whether they were shorting futures from a from a hedging perspective or from a speculative perspective a perspective seems to be up for debate, but it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. They got a buy. They got saved, right? And they got saved probably because that would have damaged the, you know, the liquidity and the and the financials of the LME. And I take particular exception to that. I think there's already been some lawsuits filed by some very large players. I assume there's going to be class actions uh, to follow. Um, and there should be, because what happened, I believe, was fundamentally wrong. Of course, I don't need to remind you that there was a certain country starting with a C involved in all of that, of course, uh, called China. Yes. And it kind of brings me back to this discussion we had before, that when people search for some of these wonderful futures markets over there, as you rightly put, and you did it very diplomatically, of course, there are certain other risks. And I'm just thinking if it can happen to an exchange that is owned by a Chinese exchange, it can certainly happen in China, I would imagine. 100%. But, and so that's what yeah. I'm saying is, is you know, there's opportunities in all sorts of yeah. places in the world. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you, you know, it's away from the LME, but, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, the ESG ratings for Russian oil companies have been higher than Canadian oil companies for a long time. It's laughable. It's it's crazy. Yet yet you know some of these things have existed, and 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 now the world's waking up. Of course, you know if you participate in these markets, you've known these things all along. But but buying oil from Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and Russia isn't the same as you know getting your oil from. Uh, you know, Norway or Canada or the U.S. And, and, and you know, again, resource extraction is an inherently invasive thing. But which of these countries is taking ESG seriously? I, I can tell you in Canada, we surely do. Um, so, you know, you're trying to balance all these factors as a, uh, um, uh, you know, an, an input into your wanting to have commodity exposure for all the reasons we were describing earlier. How can you go about that in a risk responsible way let's say you're a you know a large public pension maybe you represent teachers or uh, unionized employees and they've got very strong views from an ESG perspective especially from an environmental perspective you know how can you go about that given commodity and resource extraction is an inherently invasive process. There's no two ways about it. Whether you farm, whether you mine, whether you extract oil and gas from, from rock or from you know, the bottom of the sea, it's an inherently invasive process. And, our, and you know, where our ESG paper came out of that, it just started to bother me that, that everything commodity was getting thrown under the bus and saying it's all bad. Well, well, hold on a second here. 
commodity futures are your, we believe, this is our opinion, are your least impact way of gaining commodity exposure with the least environmental impact with some significant social and governance benefits and, and really one of the most practical solutions for responsible investors seeking commodity exposure. And, and that's different from owning uh, a resource company because when you own shares or debt of a resource company, you're inherently financing resource production, which is an invasive process. So do you, do you throw everything commodity out and forget anything like that? Or do you look for others, other ways? Well, if futures offer exposure to commodities with zero environmental impact, and there's a clear difference between ownership of a company versus having exposure to a commodity risk factor, which is exactly what owning commodity futures is, and we accept that ultimately what matters is carbon, you know, for carbon accounting is who owns the company, then it leads you to futures. And futures do not affect, we argue, do not affect consumption or production. They affect exposure to risk, and these are fundamentally different. And so it leads you back to commodity futures. The question is, where do you get them? So yes, if you go into some of these other markets and, and expand your footprint into China, yes, you have to accept that there are some other elements of ES and G that are going to now tilt the other way. But that's, that's where we as managers and then the sophisticated investors need to make that, that informed decision. Okay, so you're going to help me out here, Tim, because you are the expert on this. So I live in Switzerland and one of the neighboring countries here is very big and it starts with a G. So I'm talking about Germany here. <laughs> they are very much when it comes to institutional investors, they are against products that has commodity exposure. So I wouldn't want you to spend your marketing budget traveling to Germany um, in the next few years. So you make a case there for why they shouldn't be concerned, in a sense, uh, about this. Um, so I'm going to try and give you some of the um, arguments that I hear. Sure. And maybe you can actually help me um, come up with a narrative for next time I travel to Germany and say, no, no, it's not a problem. <laughs> no, I think one of the things they, they argue would be that, for example, we as trend followers... Um, can push prices higher, for example. So let's just say, okay, well, if oil goes higher, there's going to be more profits in you know, oil production and therefore more people are going to be uh, extracting oil from the ground and therefore it has an environmental impact, just as an example, simplified, of course. Or if it comes to food, if we push prices higher from being long, um, then some people might starve. Which brings me to another point, which I want to talk to you about, which is the food side. Because often when you talk about commodities, it's metals, it's energy, but we're going to talk about food in a second. But how how do I push back on this argument? Because frankly, even though I'd like to think that what you just put forward um, is is how it should be, I can't argue against the fact that higher oil prices probably leads to more production, like we saw under the shale revolution in the US. I don't think I can argue against that higher prices for food can have some serious consequences in certain parts of the world. So what do I do with that when I go to Germany next time? Well, we'll start with the tongue-in-cheek. The tongue-in-cheek is Germany created their own problems. They bought Russian oil and they got completely dependent on Russian oil, as, sure. as did much of Europe. And that was a risk, that was a choice. 
Um, and so we start there, put that aside for a second. So let's talk about, I'll give you four key considerations related to commodity futures in ESG, ESG related okay. considerations. Well-functioning futures markets are critical to the development of commodity markets in general, right? More supply of commodities, whether it's foodstuffs or energy or whatever goes into making something else. Um, futures markets are very important to the development of those physical markets, which in turn is important to the develop in, important in terms of the green transition. We want to go green, but we need commodities to get there, and we need risk management tools to get there. So I argue that futures markets are critical. The second thing is futures markets are essential to companies for managing risk, improving transparency, and providing liquidity. And that in itself aligns with ESG pr principles, including typically under-emphasized societal and governance considerations. So these are important for companies in managing their risk appropriately to do with ESG principles. Number three, futures offer exposure to commodities with less or even, we argue, zero environmental impact. So that's a way to get it. If you want something that is gonna be inherently inflationary, um, protection from inflation, Commodity right. futures is a way to get that without leading to the financing of resource extraction. If, if that's where you want to stay, commodity futures can get you, get you there. And then the last thing is futures offer superior risk management and diversification benefits for investors, particularly with respect to that inflation protection. So you can solve a bunch of things with commodity futures, including the development of those ESG principles because they are a risk management tool. And 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 you're right, you mentioned a key thing that will come up in, in especially in Europe, that 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 food inflation and the price of commodities is possibly enhanced or 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 pushed by these participants in the in the commodity markets, whether it's traders, CTAs, whatever. Look, at the end of the day, CTA participation is not insignificant in the commodity market, but I argue it's a drop in the bucket. I came from Shell. The participation of a energy company, big commodity producers, is massive compared to the drop in the bucket that CTAs uh, affect the market. And, and I argue that that liquidity portion of what CTAs are bringing to the table is absolutely elemental to the development of futures markets, the proliferation of futures markets, the, the well-functioning of futures markets. So we kind of list all these elements and, and none of those, none of those minimize the importance of ESG. We believe in ESG. We take it very seriously, but we're saying that I think if you go about commodities in a certain way, and you think about it from a commodity futures perspective, these things actually are kind of hand in hand where the common thought is commodities, ESG, they're opposite and they are opposed and they can't be had in the same conversation. And if that's the conversation in Germany, I think a narrative needs to be created. Yeah, and I would add to that narrative um, the fact that and we can take the current example or the current period as a, as a, as an example. I think a lot of people now that they've seen commodities rise like this, um, the lazy um, explanation would be, "Oh yeah, it's people like trend followers pushing prices up." But let me just remind people that we were getting long these commodities um, about two years ago. 
uh, at least. So we, yeah, and and actually for those of us, and I know Jerry won't be want to listen to the <laughs> next uh, thirty seconds, but for those of us who have dynamic position sizing, uh, we have been selling some of these commodities as volatility has been increasing in the last months or so. So actually providing uh, or helping prices uh, uh, move down a little bit. Um, so. Yeah. So we have strong opinions on that. Jerry, Jerry is a Jerry Parker. Uh, you know, he's iconic in this industry. He's a close friend of mine. Uh, him and I have publicly debated this issue. So this is nothing new. And you're right. We have very different approaches. And we at Auspice believe that one of the keys to what we do is adjusting our position sizing when risk reward changes to us to some degree. That's the special sauce. And we had more of that risk management adjustment in the first week or two of March than we have had in the last three years. And, and we are entirely comfortable with it that, you know, where our risk in VAR was at the, at the beginning of March was, was, uh, was dropped significantly. And, and you're right, it is a debate, but we believe it's part of the longevity and it's also part of the investor experience in terms of being involved in this asset class long term. And of course, uh, Tim, you should be tuning in to next week's episode because then Jerry will be on to uh, give his response to <laughs> to that comment. So I can't wait for that. Anyways, I want to turn to another uh, really important point. I already mentioned it, and that's the food thing. And actually, one of the things that I know you guys talk about, and I think it is very important, is just the atrocities that's happening in Ukraine and what effect it has. Maybe you can talk a little bit about why Ukraine is so important to the world when it comes to commodities, but maybe in particular to the food side of the commodity. And then I guess how that ties into the the bigger picture of, of what you um, fear or expect uh, might, might be coming in this uh, commodity super cycle. Well, so of course, Russia, Ukraine, and I do not minimize it in any way. Uh, my wife's Ukrainian, full both sides of her family. My mom's Ukrainian, so there's a lot of Ukrainian in my background. Um, and what's happening there is terrible. If we just stick to these facts about where does Ukraine and, and even Russia fit in all of this, I mean, it's an absolute powerhouse, especially from a foodstuffs perspective, grains. I mean, number one in Europe in terms of arable lands, uh, you know, the black soil, uh, very valuable soil content in, in Ukraine is, is amongst the top in the world. Uh, exports in terms of sunflower and sunflower oils, second in terms of barley production, um, third largest producer and fourth largest exporter of corn, uh, massive exporter of uh, potatoes, uh, very large producer of wheat and rye. Um, so this is a very important producer that is, is about to potentially lose its growing season. And that does have implications. But the point I want to make is that, and I'm not minimizing anything happening there, that this problem was already happening, right? So this is a, an exacerbation of the problem and we can't, you know, just minimize it. It, it, it puts it into another stratosphere, but you alluded to it earlier, the commodity opportunity as a whole has been going on for a number of years. As we rolled into 2020, we hadn't even heard the word COVID yet. Commodities were starting to move up. And the number one call out of some major investment banks of the world, all the big brand names we all know and love, was long commodities. For all the same reasons we talked about earlier. 
COVID did not change that. COVID caused a correction and a, and a knee-jerk reaction in Q1 of 2020 that pushed commodities down because we were all scared of what was going to happen and what was going to happen to consumption, especially in the energies. But nothing changed. That The fundamentals never changed. And so what's going on in the Ukraine is just another layer to this cake in terms of the exacerbation of this problem. Um, and so, you know, it's just another thing added to this potential longer term super cycle or cycle. Here's the thing at the end of the day, because I don't want to get people to get the impression that I'm so bullish and this is what's going to, you know, this is all we're bringing to the table is this bullish call, so to speak. At the end of the day, I don't care whether it goes up or it goes down from a, from an investment perspective. I want volatility. The worst case for what we do at Auspice as a trend follower and as a commodity tilted trend follower is, is a scenario like 2019. That's our worst case scenario. We had the lowest fall across all asset classes, especially commodities. We still had quantitative easing, all was right in the world. Uh, nothing was really happening. And, and that's our worst case scenario. If we have a little bit more volatility because of all these unknowns in the world, that's a better scenario. I can't really paint a picture that gets us back to 2019 low vol quantitative easing. It just ain't going to happen in the next few years. And so I'm excited about that. I don't necessarily need a bullish call. I don't necessarily like what's going on in the world from an inflation perspective. I surely do not like what's going on in the Ukraine. And I don't like the fact that you know our, our costs as, as a society have gone up tremendously and look like they're continuing to go up. What I care about is just there's going to be opportunity and volatility, and that, we think, has persistence. Price is a different paradigm, but volatility, we believe, has persistence, and I don't think we're going back to a 2019. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one thing just to, to finish off uh, uh, on the Ukraine side, and just to put that in perspective for for people listening, um, I noticed from some of the information you shared with me, um, at just a statement um, where where you mentioned that even though there are a population of 40 million-ish people in Ukraine, they can actually meet the food needs of 600 right. million people. That's why it's the, that it's the bread basket, you know, they call it the... It is indeed. They call it the yeah. bread basket. And, and, you know, these type of disruptions, then there's sanctions, they may be temporary, but they accent, accentuate a, you know, a structural deficit, as I was saying, that's already pre-existing, that is going to take years to fix, right? So these little blips you know, that are problematic supply chain and, and sanctions and all this. The problem is to fix them takes a long time. We're, we're seeing that just in global supply chain logistics. You know, this is, it hasn't fixed itself. It hasn't been three months transitory. I mean, at least they've stopped using that crazy word. And, and these things have persistence now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the last uh, few minutes, where we uh, we're we're talking, I wanted to just to maybe just jump around a few things, just that that things that I hear about that that people talk about and and wonder about, and may, maybe you have a better answer than than some of the things I've heard. One of the things uh, is, and you kind of already alluded to it. Um, we have heard for years that when uncertainty increases and inflation comes back, gold is going to be the investment to own. It hasn't been so far. Why do you think that is? Well, we have a fairly strong opinion about gold. Um, it's in many of our portfolios, uh, whether just from an agnostic long short CTA perspective. We do have a passive uh, exposure to gold in our multi-strat. 
Um, but the reason we include gold is from a diversification perspective, not an inflation hedge. And that's because we believe when you look at the data, it is an unreliable inflation hedge. So you're going to have periods of time when you can say, wow, look, it, it went up and inflation was, was high and growing. Um, gold is a great inflation hedge. We believe that has very little statistical merit. What it is is a diversifier. I mean, you know, it goes back to just like almost a practical thought. Like, what is gold? Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? Is it a store of value? Well, maybe yes. So, so we look at gold in that perspective, and that's not any different than we look at many other asset classes. You know, I've heard the argument out of some uh, some well-known Bloomberg pundits that, uh, you know, look at crypto. Crypto is an incredible inflation protection. I mean, that that has got to be the most baseless argument I've heard, you know, in years. It's almost comical. So, so you know, gold has a place in the portfolio for a certain purpose, uh, but we don't look at it as that solution from an inflation perspective. What does have uh merit is is you know cta commodity exposure long shorts exposures even long flat exposures to commodities um that'll help your portfolio given inflation is probably one of the big biggest risks to portfolios yeah no i've certainly heard that argument as well from the crypto side of things in terms of that being a perfect inflation hedge i've always always thought that that was such a funny thing to do because as far as i can tell Crypto didn't exist when we had inflation. So how on earth would they know? It's such a small data set. Inflation. It's almost it's almost ridiculous. <laughs> well, and in fact, they picked- like think about how crypto has rallied in the last couple of years. It, 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 you know, or, you know, pre-COVID in a deflationary. Yeah, it's period. a deflationary period. So like, it, come on. Yeah. Like I think people are stretching trying to make these, uh, you know, uh, causations, and and they're just not realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. It makes for good conversation, sure. I would imagine. But there we are. Um, okay. Now I know we we sort of touched on many product uh, topics already, ESG, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe one thing to um, to finish off uh, a little bit, um, kind of a combined uh, question. Um, you mentioned somewhere that um, some of the big consultants. I think you mentioned Mer- Mercer. I think you. Mm had Goldman mentioned and also BlackRock, um, what they're talking about right now in terms of of commodities. But I want to combine it a little bit as well. So what we have seen also, mainly in the US, um, so I applaud them for doing that, uh, all all five of them, uh, meaning the public pension plans, who have embraced risk mitigation. I know you've got a, a couple of big pension plans in Canada as well, who have also been pretty active in, in this space already, yeah. but most people have probably not. And um, so I just wanted to kind of see whether you have noticed, because you, you said that there's obviously a lot of interest for, for what you guys do at the moment, but just in general, what are these big uh, institutional investors saying as to why they suddenly need it now? I mean, this is the, the arguments we put forward today are not new, right? The inflation uh, protection, the low correlation, none of that is new. So why do you think suddenly this has changed? Because it's also not the first time we've had a bull run in commodities uh, in, in, in our lifetime and in our career. So, um, so I'm just curious as to what these conversations um, are like at the moment. The large public pensions have some of the same challenges that, that um, you know, retail investors do and RIAs in that, that 
are they able to um, educate their boards and their ICs in terms of what are the very effective ways of getting inflation protection? So first of all, or does anybody have any worry about it? So that takes a time to debate. I mean, you know, for the last two years, the bulk of the last two years, we were saying this was transitory. So, so you know, there's an education process. And then we have to have part of that discussion where you were talking about other things that that can provide uh, exposure and protection, whether it's gold, whether it's just, just treasuries, or if it's tips, um, what are the ways of getting that exposure? But I think some of the leading pensions of the world have have really come out strongly saying, look, if we're going to protect ourselves against one of the biggest risks, which is inflation, and maybe that area also has some opportunities from an alpha perspective, um, they are accepting that that commodities and different ways of going about commodities is is one of the best ways to get it. Now, it's going to take some time because commodities had been out of favor and and they went through a cycle if they've been around where you know a lot of the you know a lot of the pensions, a lot of the participants had left that area for for some obvious reasons. The you know it's it's recency bias by recency bias by humans, because we remember the last 10 years and commodities have not been a fun area to be in. Even CTAs have underperformed. And so there's a re-education process to that. We've seen some leaders in this regard. We've got groups like Ontario Teachers Pension Plan that have, and it's probably higher by now, this was almost a year ago, where commodities represent 12% of the entire $230 billion portfolio because they've got a CIO who has very publicly stated that that you know if our worry is inflation commodity prices tend to rise with inflation they go hand in hand and we need to go about that in some responsible ways so the question becomes how so they've obviously got a big commitment to it uh, they have inflation sensitive assets they've got absolute return assets that can uh, participate in this area and that's a big part of what they do. But we're now seeing many other plans come to the table and saying, look, whether it's risk mitigation strategies, RMS or CRO, crisis risk offset, whatever the, the, the three-letter acronym of the day is for this, now we're seeing a bigger push towards CTAs and specifically commodity-tilted CTAs that can participate in that area for all the right reasons because they can give you more than one attribute than just commodity or just crisis alpha, but can also bring in some alpha opportunities based on their experience. And this is probably the key thing for us and and given your background and what you advocate for. What we're actually hearing now is these sophisticated institutions looking for rules-based managers that are focused on commodities as opposed to fundamental discretionary. We saw a lot of fundamental discretionary historically in the commodity space, and a lot of it's come and gone. It's big win, big loss. It, 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 it is not a comfortable place for many investors. It can be if, if you really want to throw risk around, but for most people who are just stepping back into this area, CTAs and responsible rules-based ways of getting that commodity exposure, whether it's up or down, end up being a very attractive solution. So I'm very optimistic about this. We're seeing a big push. Uh, We are seeing a lot of catch-up and everybody's catching up. The good news out of that is 
you know, the idea of like putting 2% of the portfolio, some minuscule amount, which by the way, I, I kind of liken to exercising two or three times a year. It's like, it's not going to hurt you, but it just doesn't help you enough. Um, you've got to commit to it. And we're seeing some fairly significant allocations in the commodity CRO risk mitigation um, area with a commodity tilt. These are bigger numbers. You know, we're talking about uh, 10%, 20% exposures um, coming into uh, their portfolios. So this is not insignificant. It takes a bit of time. Uh, but the good news, we believe, and it is a bit of a fundamental statement, is I think we're, I think we're early innings, inning two of a 9-10 in, inning ball game. Not just because commodities are going to go up like an escalator. There's going to be a few elevators down but and, and a lot of volatility. But that plays into what we do as disciplined rules-based managers in a, an incredible way. Yeah, no, that is actually uh, well said um, and uh, a great place to to um, end our conversation slowly, so to speak. Uh, what I normally do here, Tim, is I remind people of how the performance of this wonderful industry is doing. And uh, so let me just do that. And that is to say that the Beta 50 index is up already in April, 1.59% uh, as of Thursday night, up 11 and a quarter already in uh, year to date. Uh, Sockgen CTA index up 1.8%, up 14.8% year to date. Sockgen trend index soaring again up 2.3% for the month, up more than 20% now for the year. Um, and the short-term traders index up 1.4% for the month and up 7% for the year. My own trend barometer has actually dropped to neutral, which is the first time in a long time. I hope that's not going to be something that is um, predicting what's going to happen um, go, um, going forward. I think with the price action that I can see on the screen today, I'm hopeful that uh, when I do the run tomorrow morning that it will start moving back up again. Um, and uh, by the way, if you enjoy these conversations, you can always uh, help us um, by leaving a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify uh, so that more people can find the podcast. And also just to um, say that next week uh, we are joined by Jerry and therefore there will be some hardcore trend following plus nothing lessons, no doubt. And uh, I'm sure a, um, a brutal response to uh, our conversation today <laughs> about dynamic uh, portfolio uh, position sizing. Of course, you can email your questions to us us info at toptradersonplug.com and we do our best to uh, to answer them as soon as we can from tim and me thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week in the meantime take care of yourself and take care of each other thanks for listening to the systematic investor podcast series if you enjoy this series go on over to itunes and leave an honest rating and review and be sure to listen to all the other episodes from top traders unplugged if you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.